You're listening to Asia Pack Unwrapped, first broadcast on the 4th of October 2015 on Monocle 24. Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. From our studios in Tokyo, Hong Kong and Singapore, and right here at Midori House in London, this is Asia Pack Unwrapped, your unmissable weekly briefing from the world's most dynamic region. Coming up in the program, we'll learn how an innovative approach to education by one Cambodian school is inspiring students and giving fresh hope to the nation's economic future. Our philosophy here is to never hold a child back, so if they're good at something, we need to help them excel in that. We'll also touch down in Tokyo to explore the city's department store scene, which also acts as a key destination for Japanese design. This is really the high point to me, this sort of period, 50s, 60s, 70s, absolutely the high point of Japanese product design. Plus, how do you navigate the delicate process of stepping out from under the wing of an established global brand? I think if you can get that brand clarity right and make sure that the customer understands it and then comes and tries you and you deliver on it, that ultimately is is a very sustainable model for the future. And later in the show, we'll hear about the surprising niche that's attracting more and more visitors to Seoul. That's all to come on Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ, starting now. I'm Ben Ryland. Plenty coming up on today's show, including a look at why Australia's plan to join the UN Security Council is taking a very long-term approach. But first, we're off to Cambodia, where, in a country of poor education and limited opportunity, 50 fortunate students have started their fourth year of free education at a well-equipped leafy private school founded by a US businessman. The school is called the Liger Learning Centre, a Liger being a cross between a lion and a tiger. And its aim is not only to produce a new generation of Cambodians with the skills to improve this impoverished country, but to develop an education model that can be replicated well beyond Cambodia's borders. Monocle contributor Robert Carmichael went along to find out more. Three years ago, the Liger Learning Centre opened on this site a half-hour's drive south of Phnom Penh. The 50 Cambodian students live on campus on full scholarships and get home just five times a year. Next year, another 50 pupils will join them. Trevor Guile and his wife founded the school. In reality, we started out to change international aid, effectively trying to help people help themselves as opposed to just giving away um, money and resources. And in the process, it became apparent that we also had to change education to accomplish this. The students, who are now 12 and 13 years old, won scholarships in 2012 after a tough selection process that saw Liger's assessors scour Cambodia for the most promising kids, many of whom come from very poor backgrounds. But promising isn't just about IQ. It's about so much more, and sometimes it's very hard to quantify. You can see it in a person, whether it's a sense of optimism, a work ethic, um, a degree of, of intuitiveness, the ability to solve problems, connect dots. What we're looking for are the young people who are going to be able to take what we give them and go much, much further with it than they ever would have without us. 
The quid pro quo, though unenforceable, is that they remain in Cambodia after graduating school or university to help their nation progress. Central to this approach is ensuring they remain attached to their own culture. We are not westernizing them. They have a dual language curriculum. Uh, we really want to make sure that they remain Cambodian in every sense of the word, but enabled Cambodians. Education in Cambodia's government schools typically sees children study a handful of subjects with a view to passing exams, rote learning with few questions asked. That's not the approach here, says country director Dom Sharp. The children learn the national curriculum, but they also engage in project-based learning and use their laptops to find, analyse and understand information. Experiential learning is a huge part of what we do here. The, the students here spend a lot of time out of the classroom, uh, out of Phnom Penh, and uh, sometimes even out of, out of the country. So uh, that's very different. You know, learning by experiencing something, you're never going to forget it. The school helps children pursue areas in which they've shown a particular interest. Our philosophy here is to never hold a child back, so if they're good at something, we need to help them excel in that. 13-year-old Sam Nang's interest is technology, for which Liger assigned him a mentor, a budget and time to research further. So I'm passionate about technology and I like coding, like web development. I'm making one of the websites for local organization, NGO in Simrip. So i chatting, I do that website through email, so i coding for them. And also i learning about languages to make a mobile app and game. And we, we have an, a team that will teach Cambodia how to code and how to fix computer. We want to share as many knowledge as possible. Next February, Sam Nang will mentor two groups of LIGA students competing in a robotics competition in Singapore. With his team earning second place in the same contest earlier this year, Sam Nang's hopeful of a win. Uh, we interviewed Rakstaben in... In a nearby class, 12-year-old Dalin talks podcasting with other students. Earlier, she told me about a podcast they put together on Cambodian singers, most of whom Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge killed in the 1970s. This project is called the Hidden Voices and uh, we create this project because there are many, many old songs of Cambodia are endangered when all the singers does. For this project, we want to create a podcast and then interview many people about them and their old songs. When you and your fellow students were doing the podcast, you all sang. So what was your song? That is from Rosary Whether writing lines of code, compiling podcasts or playing music, creativity is integral to Liga. And unlike most Cambodian schools, it has the resources to help the pupils to dream big and to succeed. For instance, 13-year-old Seha, a keen reader, is part of a student team that travelled Cambodia to write and illustrate a wildlife book. It will be published in January with all our original painting from the Liger student and also the book have all the facts of every animal in Cambodia that we have researched. That book will be distributed to schools across Cambodia, as will another they wrote about the economy. No small achievement for a group of 12 and 13 year olds. With so much achieved in three years, I asked co-founder Trevor Guile about the goal for the next decade. Well, 
I'm glad that you asked that because some people have from time to time thought that this might be a rich guy's pet project. It's absolutely not the case. We went into this intending to create a model, a model that could be replicated outside of Cambodia, virtually anywhere. And in order to do this, we have to be fiscally responsible. The model has to be self-sustainable and to make economic sense. The next school will likely open in the region, perhaps in Laos or Vietnam. In a decade, Guil expects at least 10 Liger learning centers in countries around the world. Meantime, Guil says the onus is on him to make sure the model delivers the results he promises. So far, it's, it's working in spades. And so I'm quite confident that we can show the results that we promise we can deliver. And at that point, it's only logical, it only makes sense that other like-minded individuals and organizations around the world uh, are going to say, hey, I like this idea. I think we can work together and expand it. For Monocle in Phnom Penh, I'm Robert Carmichael. Robert Carmichael there exploring Cambodia's Liger Learning Center. You're listening to Asia-Pac Unwrapped in association with ANZ. Now, it's no secret that Japan has a ferocious appetite for retail therapy. And a weakening economy is attracting increased international attention to the country's famous shopping havens. Japan had its highest number of foreign visitors in 2014, and that trend is likely to continue as the government chases its ambitious target of 20 million international shoppers a year by 2020. Ginza is just one of the country's favourite urban destinations, playing home to glamorous department stores and fashion brands. And the Matsuya Ginza department store is almost like a cherry on top of the district's famed shopping culture. Kenji Hall and Fiona Wilson from Monocle's Tokyo Bureau popped into Matsuya's renowned seventh floor, home to some of Japan's most sought-after design collections. Today, Kenji and I are in Ginza. I mean, this is a a shopping area of Tokyo, very high-end, lots of uh, big brands here. But one thing that's really fantastic about this area is Matsuya. It's a department store. It's an old department store. But on the seventh floor, it has this uh, really amazing thing called the Design Collection. And anyone interested in design, Japanese design, should come here. It's a, a collection of really interesting products made in Japan, all well-designed, of course, chosen by the Japan Design Committee, and they are the great and good of Japanese design. It's a lot of big names, people like Naoto Fukuzawa, Ken Yahara, names people interested will know about. And, and they've selected products. There are some products that are not from Japan, but there's a really fantastic selection of products they're not new some of them are very old they're they're classics that have been around for years a mixture of chairs homeware cutlery lighting um, and you know some things that people will know but I think it's a really good uh, introduction to Japanese product design you know some of these original members like Isemu Kemochi their products are here so really one of the I, I think it's such a classic piece of Japanese design but Isemu Kemochi did a stool in the late 50s 1958 I can see the label which is it's a stacking stool now this stool you see absolutely everywhere in different colors it's got it's just the simplest stool two plywood legs bent plywood and a, and a, a, a slightly cushioned seat you see this everywhere old shops you know groovy designers houses and here it is it's not a bank breaker I have to say to buy it and it still sells very well they, they sometimes update it with you know changing the cushion fabric um, you've also got Soria Nagi's um, tableware which is very well known it's really fantastic made in Japan pots and pans and his ceramics as well 
really, this, this, there's a great chair here, Kenji, you should have a, have a seat. Um, the Nye chair, which was, you know, it was designed in 1970 and went out of production. And funnily enough, I saw it recently in a house we did for Monocle, the original. And, and I was struck by how beautiful this chair was. And sure enough, uh, I wasn't alone. Months later, this chair then has gone back into production. Takeshi Nye is the designer's name. Um, and, and now you can buy that. And I, I think one of the great things about Japanese product design is it's really... It's functional. I mean, they don't really go in for pointless decoration. Everything in here, the reason it's still here is because you can use it just as well as when it was designed, whether it was the 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever. So I think you're really in this, this, this is really the high point. To me, this sort of period, 50s, 60s, 70s, absolutely the high point of Japanese product design. And yet we also have on the shelves lots of products that have been designed even more recently than that. Uh, it, there is this sort of continuum of design that you get from being in this room. Yeah, I think it's sort of, a, you know, it's a credit to Japan how much is still made in Japan. I mean, I've got my eye on these Seiko wall clocks. I mean, again, you see these absolutely everywhere. There's nothing, you know, particularly new, but the designs are really classic. They don't need to change them. They're, they're, they're just as good as they are. And, you know, I think... Japan is still quite unusual that way. You know, lots of these companies are still manufacturing in Japan. It is in places they've been manufacturing for years. So, you know, that's something that, you know, I think for outsiders to come here, it's, it's really good to see all this in one place. And it's not like a sort of souvenir shop, but I have a feeling that anybody who came here would want to buy so many things here. And there's an amazing sort of, the price range is, I think, very reasonable. And finally, Fiona's going to choose one product that, uh, that she's been coveting since we arrived. It's not fair. There are just too many good products here. Seriously, I recommend everyone who comes to Tokyo to come to this place. But I think I'm going to go with the Kenmochi stool. I really love it. And I just looked at the price tag. It's 17,500 yen. It's about 130 euros. Not bad. And it's kind of small enough that you could maybe uh, get away with it on a plane as well. We're going to walk across the room to my choice, which is over here in the corner. It's uh, made by a tiny company called Wadaske Seisakusho. And it's just, it's just a very simple water jug made out of, it looks to be stainless steel, you know, with a with lid that pops open uh, and a handle. And that's it. It's, it's very simple. It's classic, classic design. It costs about 28,000 yen, which is even more expensive than your stool, actually. <laughs> but yeah, just a, a beautiful piece of classic design, I think. Good choice. And chosen by Naoto Fukuzawa as well. I mean, if it's good enough for him, Japan's top product designer, probably good enough for us. And this, this label says that uh, this product has been around since 1990. So another example of how these you know, products have, have really enduring designs. That was Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief Fiona Wilson and our Asia editor-at-large Kenji Hall there, popping in for a spot of shopping at the Matsuyo Ginza department store. You're listening to Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. Still to come, we'll pull back the curtain on a famed hotel's rebrand. Plus, which Asian city is the new hotspot for cosmetic surgery holidays? We'll find out soon. This is Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ on Monocle 24. Visitors flocking to the South Korean capital peaked in 2013, with more than 12 million tourists pumping trillions of won into the economy. But a surprising niche in the nation's tourism is seeing a rapid rise. The cosmetic surgery industry in Seoul has become so lucrative, the government has begun focusing on the sector as a key element in the nation's ability to attract international investors. 
Now, it may not be the kind of holiday that lends itself well to memorable holiday photos, but cosmetic surgery is one of the fastest-growing sectors in the medical industry, with growth forecasts of about $3.6 billion in 2015. Jason Strother is Monocle's correspondent in Seoul. He spoke to Fernando Augusto Pacheco about this surprisingly popular corner of the market. Well, South Korea's plastic surgery industry is 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 very large considering the size of the population. If you look at statistics surveys from the International Association uh, of Aesthetic Surgeons, South Koreans undergo per capita the, the highest number of cosmetic procedures, well ahead of other top contenders like the United States, Brazil, uh, or in other Western countries. Uh, lookism is a very strong force here. It's not uncommon for parents to give their high school graduate daughters the gift of a a double eyelid surgery in in which uh, a plastic surgeon inserts an extra fold into the skin of the eyelid or um, a nose bridge extension as a gift for graduating. And now they are also actually trying to expand this industry. So they are trying to attract visitors to, to perform plastic surgeries in the country, especially in China, right? All right, Fernando. I mean, if you look at the countries where Korean popular culture, the Korean wave has made it big, uh, you will see a direct correlation with uh, an increase in tourists coming to South Korea to undergo cosmetic surgery. Uh, for instance, China, right. Uh, Korean popular culture, music, movies, television, uh, a big hit over there in the People's Republic. So now you have tens of thousands of Chinese visitors coming here to Seoul uh, to try to look like their favorite Korean celebrities. And you have both the the South Korean government as well as the local Seoul government uh, encouraging these kind of junkets for Chinese visitors to come here, have plastic surgery, enjoy shopping, stay at a nice place, uh, and have what they say are procedures done by the world's top aesthetic surgeons. That's very interesting. So basically the government is almost like kind of subsidizing this industry. In a way, I mean, there are certain, you know, the government is encouraging these uh, tour groups to come here. Uh, whether or not the government is, is subsidizing the individual sur- um, surgeries, uh, no, that doesn't seem to be the case. But right, they are uh, definitely helping the... Uh, the government has decided that medical tourism is one of the uh, pillars of the overall tourism industry here, uh, and that includes plastic surgeries. And do you think the country feels this, this benefits economically? Well, Fernando, it certainly helps the plastic surgery industry as, as well as other commercial ventures that are propped up around the surgery industry. Of course, hotels, uh, beauty products are an, another big uh, tourism on, the, on many tourists' shopping list when they come here. Uh, so, yeah, it, it certainly does help uh, the economy in that sense. Our correspondent in Seoul there, Jason Strother, chatting to Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco. This is Asia Pack Unwrapped on Monocle 24 in association with ANZ. Now, regardless of a business's core function, the first association a customer often has with a company is usually the brand. It's an integral aspect of any aspiring or established business. 
For a startup, it can be easier to establish a brand promise that delivers fresh products and services. But what about rebranding a big established corporation? Well, that was the challenge facing Hong Kong's Quarters Hotel, which recently took a step away from the well-known Langham umbrella. Monocle's Kurt Lin sat down for a chat with Sean Campbell, General Manager of the Quartus, following its refresh last month. I'm Sean Campbell, General Manager of the Quartus Hotel in Hong Kong, our first Quartus Hotel in the world that just uh, launched two weeks ago. So what happened from uh, Langham to Quartus? Yeah, I, I guess most importantly, and, uh, and we're excited about the fact that w- we are very much still part of the Langham family, uh, where it's the same operating and management team running the hotel, uh, and yet we've had a great opportunity because this has been such a successful business uh, that we felt the need to try and uh, leverage that success utilising some of the things that are slightly different from a traditional Langham branded hotel. Uh, It's a much more contemporary style of uh, both architecture and service that we have at Cordis and and I think it'll help the customer to to be able to see that difference and and hear a different name uh, and, and hopefully that means extra business for both Langham and Cordis uh, hotels around the world as we grow both brands. I see a lot of colorful paintings hanging up in the wall and also some beautiful contemporary Chinese sculpture in the public space. What's the differences? What are the differences between Langham and Cordis? The major differences? Uh, I think firstly uh, the Langham uh, brand is a luxury brand. Uh, it's certainly uh, typically in primary locations and not a large-scale style of hotel, typically uh, three to four hundred rooms. Uh, and for Cordis, there is much more flexibility within the brand. We're a five-star or upscale brand, not trying to be luxury, but still certainly giving good quality to our customers. And perhaps we've got a little bit more flexibility to uh, have a little bit more informality in the service at times, and perhaps a little bit more creativity in in the way that we uh, that we dress the building, uh, whether it's in uh, the kind of venue that we're in today, which is a more rustic style lounge, uh, but very urban experience, not necessarily a typical hotel experience in Alibi, uh, through to, as you say, many of the colourful art pieces and sculptures that we've got all around the hotel. So for a big corporation to do a rebranding project like this, it must be some huge challenges. What are they? I think the most important thing in uh, in any brand is to make sure that there's firstly clarity internally and then externally to, to the customer as to what the brand stands for and what the strengths of the brand are and then for us internally to make sure we bring that to life and hopefully just reinforce that message really clearly for uh, uh, for our customers and, and uh, we have um, a brand promise that is um, we, we describe for Cordis as heartfelt service. Uh, that's, um, that's very much about uh, the genuineness, I think, the authenticness of the style of service that we give um, and we, we really feel that we can display that all through the building, whether it's the personalization of our club lounge guest, uh, whether it's just a friendly face at the reception where we welcome hundreds of guests a day because we're a big hotel. So heartfelt service for us is is our brand promise and we feel that that plays a bit on the word cordis, which is at uh, this new brand uh, is, is a Latin term uh, literally meaning heart. Uh, and we felt that 
the combination of heartfelt service uh, as well as our hotel and future quarters as being very much in the heart of their neighbourhood, very much embracing their neighbourhood, uh, we felt would um, really be a powerful message uh, and takeaway for, for those that come and stay with us. Um, so I think if you can get that brand clarity right and make sure that if the customer understands it and then comes and tries you and you deliver on it, that ultimately is, is a very sustainable model for the future. Do you have any nuance advice to any big corporation that are thinking to rebrand themselves? Well, I think I think certainly we gave ourselves um, uh, quite a bit of of, of time and adequate uh, adequate thinking time as well as adequate engagement time. So we feel we've diagnosed very well the market opportunity and matching that with our strengths. Time will tell, but the brand essence that we're conveying, we feel very much gels with both of those. We feel it gels with who we are and what we do well. And we know over time that has been good for business because there's been great market demand for that. Uh, so I think getting that clarity and message right and, and then making sure that it's a good fit for where there is market demand uh, is, um, is a great formula. That was Kurt Lin there from Monocle's Hong Kong Bureau discussing the do's and don'ts of rebranding at the Cordis Hotel. Well, we're nearly at the end of this week's edition of Asia Pack Unwrapped, but before we depart, we'll focus on a quite unexpected development to come out of the United Nations General Assembly. There were, of course, plenty of international crises up for discussion at this year's Theatre of Global Diplomacy, but why worry about the present ones when you can think about 2029 instead? Australia is looking to rejoin the UN Security Council, but not for another 15 years. The somewhat glacial approach from Australia's Foreign Minister Julie Bishop is thanks to the 2029-2030 term being the first available one that won't be contested by other nations, making Australia a fairly safe bet. But it's also been reported that the lack of opposition will make the country's bid a far cheaper affair as well. Well, earlier this week on The Briefing here on Monocle 24, Monocle's editor Andrew Tuck discussed this slightly bizarre diplomatic move with journalist and commentator Karen Middleton in Canberra. There are a few things at play here. You've got to remember Australia has just served on the Security Council, so it had a two-year stint with, which ended in December of last year, and there's a bit of domestic politics going on here. We've just changed our Prime Minister. We've uh, got a habit of doing that in the past five years, and we've had another domestic uh, political coup, if you like, and we've got a new Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, and he has decided that it would be a good idea to have another go at this. Now, his pre- predecessor, Tony Abbott, Um, had this proposal before him but we understand wasn't terribly keen but Mr Turnbull has only just elevated himself to to the position in the last three weeks so he's now put this forward. The argument is that uh, Australia wants to be in the game. They want to want to be in the international diplomatic game, but they want to do it at the lowest cost possible. Uh, when the current government was in opposition, the Conservative parties in Australia, they opposed Australia's attempt to join the Security Council on the grounds largely that it was costing too much. It cost 25 million Australian dollars over five years because they joined the race effectively quite late. And that meant they had to... Um, Uh, make special effort, special diplomatic effort at great expense. The argument here is whatever the issues are in 15 years' time, they want to be having a seat at the table and they can do that in the course of their normal diplomatic efforts, not with special efforts that will cost more. Karen Middleton there in Canberra, chatting to Monocle's editor, Andrew Tuck. 
And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. The show was produced by our studios in Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Singapore, and by me, Ben Rylan, here at Midori House in London. Toby Hammond was our editor, and Kurt Lin was our researcher. We're back at the same time next week, that's 7am Monday in Sydney, 9am in Wellington, and 2200 hours on Sunday here in London. Listen again and find out more at monocle.com or tune in via iTunes, SoundCloud or the Monocle app. This is Asia Pack Unwrapped on Monocle 24 in association with ANZ. Until next time, I'm Ben Ryland. Enjoy your week. <laughs>